Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 37. Sadly, there are uh, actors out there who are going to seek seek to capitalise on on what they see as an opportunity to exploit consumers in particular. And so the technology firms would say that and demonstrate there's been a significant increase in, in phishing attacks in trying to persuade people to part with their credentials. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Money fuels serious crime including drugs trafficking, human slavery, and terrorism. The United Nations has estimated that between 800 billion and 2 trillion US dollars is laundered around the world each year. Managing financial crime risk while keeping up with the pace and speed at which trade finance and payments technologies are emerging presents a huge challenge for banks all around the world. Detecting and countering illegal financial activity is challenging enough for banks and FIs, regulators and governments. Add to this an inconsistent definition instead of standards. We certainly face a dilemma when it comes to balancing out regulation with innovation in trade finance. Today, we're joined by Standard Chartered's Group Head of Financial Crime Compliance, David Howes, here to discuss some of these challenges. David, thank you for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. Thanks for inviting me, Depesh. So 30-second elevator pitch from you. Who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? Well, my name's David Howes. I'm the co-head for financial crime compliance at Standard Chartered Bank based in London. Standard Chartered is an international bank. We've got a presence in over 70 markets, and we exist to drive uh, commerce and prosperity. In support of that, my mandate is about championing our mission in support of partnering to lead in the fight against financial crime. Thanks, David. So know your customer, anti-money laundering and counter-terror financing policies are certainly at the front of mind for trade banks all around the world. In our recent 2020 predictions report, every single respondent mentioned one of these points as a challenge for the decade ahead. What's your view, David? Well, it's been 50 years since the Bank Secrecy Act in the US. It's 31 years since the Financial Action Task Force was formed. 21 years since the US Senate investigations on money laundering in private and correspondent banking were initiated. We're now on to the fifth European Union money laundering directive. And it's been 20 years since the Wolfsburg Group was established. But for all the passage of time, in 2020, sitting here today, the estimate for financial crime news criminal economy this year is going to be worth $5.8 trillion. Furthermore, we'd expect that less than 1% of those criminal proceeds are eventually seized by the authorities. So this is not a policy success when one considers billions of dollars of investment that have gone in from the private sector and the government sectors. But I remain convinced that the, the use of data and of financial tools to make an impact on this challenge can be a great opportunity. And if policymakers are similarly of this view, I think it's a very safe bet that the why of AML is not going to go away. I think the challenge in front of us all in the industry is how to get more effective on the how of AML. Great. Thank you, David. I'm actually going to jump straight into an immediate challenge on our doorsteps. And we're seeing 
the headlines this week rush in around the increase of crime as a result of the uncertainty around the COVID-19 outbreak. What's your view as a bank on what's happening right now in terms of potential increased financial crime as a result of this? I think the most obvious area that we're going to see an increase in threat is in the fraud space. So sadly, there are uh, actors out there who are going to seek seek to capitalize on, on what they'd see as an opportunity to exploit consumers in particular. And so the technology firms would say that and demonstrate there's been a significant increase in, in phishing attacks in trying to persuade people to part with their credentials, which could open them up to a major fraud risk. I think if we look slightly further ahead, in an environment where we'd expect to see potentially a major economic downturn, people and businesses under pressure, those experiences tend to correlate with increasing fraud risks as people uh, stray the wrong side of ethical behavior in order to keep themselves going. So I think without question in the fraud space, a big challenge in front. If I think about some of those other financial crime risks, money laundering, sanctions, anti-bribery and corruption, I think that's less immediately apparent in terms of changes that might take place as a result of the current virus-related challenges. But of course, people will always be looking to exploit uncertainty or to exploit changes that are necessarily being made just in terms of things like working patterns and, and processes as businesses come under strain and have to put business continuity plans in place. So I have no doubt that there are people out there thinking right now, how do we take advantage of this? And the challenge for, for banks and for, for all legitimate uh, players in the economy is, is trying to keep up with and, and prevent that from happening. We'll start with the corporate customer and the bank before, I guess, we move on to the regulatory view. When it comes to clamping down on illegal activity within trade and supply chain finance, what's the most pressing trade finance compliance issue that you at Standard Charters focusing on in 2020? I think should not change. And this is true for us and it's true for all financial institutions. So what should not change is we've got to keep the front door of the bank properly guarded, getting right the customer due diligence we do when we take on new clients is absolutely crucial. It's the foundation for all of the controls that follow. It's got implications for the clients of banks. There is a greater demand for transparency, even in non-borrowing relationships. But I think that increasingly that's been accepted, albeit not universally and not everywhere yet. Beyond that, though, I think that the issue most banks will or should be occupied with in 2020 and beyond is how do we increase the efficiency and effectiveness in the trade space of our AML programs. So if you think about how a lot of banks have approached AML in trade finance, historically there's a, a lot of manual checks across the many documents that have accompanied transactions and which banks are processing on a daily basis. And this is not really as effective as you'd want it to be. We're dealing with high volumes, we're dealing with a manual process, and we're putting significant people resources against it. I think I'd add to that with a lot of global trade nowadays migrating to open account, there's actually less information in some transactions to support risk assessment. For those situations where we have the data, but we don't have it in a 
structured format, how do we change that and how do we make use of it? And then secondly, for those transactions where we've got less data than we may have done historically, how do we combine other data points with that so that we can effectively monitor it? I think to address that, a number of things in flight, so looking at things like optical character recognition technology combined with machine learning that should help us process larger amounts of data hidden in all of those documents, but also looking to combine data with sources that might not have been as, as readily available historically. So bringing data out of, out of places like the corporate registries in, in different countries, bringing together data about expected clients and account behavior and looking for deviations from that, bringing data about the lines of business that clients are engaged in. And we're going to continue experimenting with different data sets and new technologies, trying to really raise our game on our ability to be getting at the truly suspicious activity with less manual effort than we invest today. I actually think some of that coincides with a change in international trade more broadly, which is looking to deploy technology more than it has done in the past and where you see some new entrants coming in all of which is spinning off data at an accelerating rate. So I think in a nutshell, that the challenge is how do we make better use of all of those data without drowning in it? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that there are a number of trade techs and fintechs in the space right now, very aggressively exploring some of these gold mines and finding out whether they can spot some of these patterns, use big data to, to really combat some of the issues around AML, KYC, etc. Take a step back and look at the regulator view now. Is the regulatory treatment trade finance, in your opinion, fair for banks, given that, and we know from several data sources and figures that trade finance is a fairly low-risk asset class? So I think that historically there's been a lot of misunderstanding between trade-based money laundering so using the international trade system to launder assets and then documentary trade as a product and the role that banks play in those processes. So laundering money through the international trade system is, I think, well recognized as a significant risk, but it's not the same as the risk you get in trade assets. In the subset of transactions that are financed by banks rather than directly by importers and exporters, there's some opportunity to identify unusual activity. But with ever more of that trade being financed open account, the opportunity is reducing. And I think that for any competent industrial scale money laundering network, they will either not require financing, because let's be clear, there's not really a performance risk here in that type of network, or they're going to be at a level of sophistication that a bank simply looking at documents is unlikely to identify it. So I've long taken the view that a different approach is needed if we really want to tackle trade-based money laundering. It's a view that might not be popular with all of your listeners, but the analogy I would draw is this. So if in the financial system, you have the banks providing the payment infrastructure, the major financial centers of the transit hubs in that infrastructure, and the financial regulators overseeing it from within government, in the trade system, you have the shipping lines and logistics firms providing that trade infrastructure, the ports as the transit hubs, and the border and customs authorities overseeing it from within government. Now, if you want to solve 
laundering through the international trade system, you need to get engaged those actors, shippers, the ports, and the border and customs authorities in the trade system in the same way that we sought to engage financial institutions in tackling laundering in the financial system. I think it's an area that's going to need a different type of policy response that starts to bring in scope of the AML regime, those other actors, in the same way that that regime brings in scope designated non-financial businesses and professions in, for example, the laundering of assets through the property market and the role that an estate agent would play in that, or the laundering of assets through art or antiquities and the role that an auction house might play in that. So I think if we really want to tackle laundering through the trade system, which I do believe is a significant risk, we've got to think differently about the most effective way of doing so. Just given the breadth of your role, would you agree with me that regulators look at trade finance as just another financial asset class? And you mentioned mortgages, for example, as as one other example. Do you think that trade finance has been almost added on to the end in order to try and fight this problem of TBML, whereas actually your response or, or your potential advice would be, let's look at this or a different lens completely? I think that um, I think regulators have probably looked at what tools are in their toolbox. And given that been a lot of work on areas such as correspondent banking and the infrastructure that banks have been building up around the monitoring of payments, I can well imagine, and I should probably say policymakers rather than regulators to be more accurate, I can well imagine people making the assumption that's an infrastructure that's well-placed to go after trade-based money laundering. And in pockets it is, but as I was saying, the a lot of the international trade system doesn't need finance from banks. And where it does need finance from banks, the due diligence hurdles that we put in place probably make it less attractive for, for a money launderer to seek to exploit. It's actually going to be in some of the the payments that we make that that risk presents itself to us. And in that regard, there isn't the same opportunity in most markets to collect all of the data. Policymakers have perhaps assumed that we have, having looked at things like documentary trade 10 plus years ago. So as I say, I think if we want to really crack laundering through the trade system, and I don't underestimate what a challenge that would be, we've got to think about the role that other actors can play within it. It's not to say there's, there's no role for banks. I think there is, but we certainly can't do it alone. And I think that brings us nicely into our next question, which is really looking at some of the global initiatives that are currently happening to bring some of these policymakers together and really engage the discussion with some of the key actors in this, which is the Wolfsburg Group. What is the Wolfsburg Group and what are the Wolfsburg principles, David? The Wolfsburg Group's an association of 13 global banks, including Standard Chartered, and it aims to develop frameworks and guidance for managing financial crime risks. The first set of AML principles that Wolfsburg published back in 2000, covering private banking, and since then the group's gone on to publish quite a significant number of documents, whether that's principles, guidance, FAQs, or, or statements. I think the common theme across them all is they're all intended to provide financial institutions with an industry perspective on what's going to be effective in managing financial crime risks. 
Why are standards important in combating financial crime? And can you give any examples of initiatives going on here? Sure. So I guess standards are important, particularly when it comes to international finance and trade, because whilst it's a cliche, it remains true that that the system's only as strong as its weakest link. So at Standard Chartered, we've invested significantly over the last seven years to address some of our uh, well-documented historic failures around financial crime. One thing we realized in doing that, and we've been quite public about some of our lessons learned, is that if you really want to tackle some of these challenges, you need to look at risks quite broadly rather than narrowly. So leading in tackling financial crime means working with other banks, policymakers, law enforcement, and regulators to seek to drive improvements in, in effectiveness of a financial crime ecosystem as a whole. A great example here is the work that the Wolfsburg Group's done on correspondent banking due diligence. It published a refreshed correspondent banking questionnaire. That was initiated in part in response to the work of the Financial Stability Board on seeking to address de-risking in the correspondent banking space, which is where international banks have exited uh, large numbers of respondents as the risks or the costs of servicing them have simply grown too great. The theory, and I think the practice that we're starting to see from initiatives such as the Wolfsburg Group's work on standards in this space, is that by putting in place processes within banks really properly address some of those questions in the Wolfsburg Correspondent Banking Due Diligence Questionnaire, the institutions filling it in will really have to put in place a reasonable financial crime compliance program. And by doing that over the longer term, not only can those standards make the all of the banks in the chain more effective at fighting financial crime, they will also start to tackle some elements of the, the cost to serve challenge and in so doing have a, a positive effect on issues such as de-risking, access to finance and the development of trade and financial inclusion. So really foundational role there for standards that can be applied across the industry, across the world, all pointing towards tackling some of these shared challenges. Thank you. And I think a risk-based approach is quite important here. And I'll refer more specifically to the, the other Wolfsburg uh, document, the Statement of Effectiveness, which was released in December last year. What's the risk-based priority and how can banks improve the overall effectiveness of the financial crime compliance regime? For me, a risk-based priority for financial crime, it means putting resources against those actions that can achieve the greatest harm reduction. And when you look at the financial crime regime as a whole, we know today that's not happening. So a significant amount of bank resource goes into what a colleague has described to me as chasing the innocent around the system. Then when we do file suspicious activity reports, we know there are capacity constraints on the law enforcement side, such that the vast majority will not be followed up and at best may be of intelligence value to an existing or future investigation. So a more effective system, I think, in our view would be how do we target and how do we make better use of resources across both the private and public sectors and recognize within that that part of the purpose of a bank compliance program is to provide highly useful information to government agencies in priority areas on which they're focused. I think that can all too often be forgotten when we think about compliance at financial institutions. 
So, of course, we should comply with law and regulation. And, of course, we must establish a reasonable set of risk-based systems and controls. But, but those two elements should be considered necessary conditions for an effective programme rather than the aim of the programme if we're going to realise the opportunity of using financial intelligence to reduce the harms from crime. And so, and I think this is a key element of the effectiveness statement from Wolfsburg, we should actively encourage banks to be moving resources away from those built-up areas of perceived good practice which don't really support any of the three pillars of an effective financial crime compliance programme, that being compliance with law and regulation, risk-based systems and controls, and provision of information to law enforcement. So you would agree with the financial actions task also believe that just having reasonable legal frameworks in place for financial crime prevention is, is no longer sufficient. I guess, how can groups like Wolfsburg assess the effectiveness of AML CTF programs within financial institutions? I think for the Wolfsburg group and its statement on effectiveness, the way I think of it is a real call to action for reform. Because as I said at the outset, the way we're managing AML regimes at a system level is not yet nearly as effective as it could or, or should be. I'm actually really quite enthusiastic that there's scope for change in policy circles. So a number of things that have come forward on both sides of the Atlantic indicate that. I think that the US National Illicit Finance Strategy that was published early this year includes efficiency and effectiveness as one of its three uh, strategic priorities. Similarly, here in the UK, the Economic Crime Plan published last year is actively being looked at for implementation now. And we've seen innovative work on public-private partnerships in a number of jurisdictions in Europe and in Asia-Pacific. Then at the international level, the FATF has in flight a strategic review to bring greater focus onto effective outcomes. In terms of what we as, as the industry can do to support that, I do think that engagement in the dialogue from a system perspective rather than a bank perspective is really important. I think we should be encouraging bold move forwards. I'd really highlight to the listeners a very good article by David Lewis, who's the executive secretary of the FATF and published on our website that talks about how to take forward greater focus on effective outcomes and flags out three areas which I think we share the view are good areas to focus on, and that's innovation and better use of technology. It's greater collaboration and information sharing, both within the private sector and across private and public sector, and it's education. And those are all areas that are really worth focusing on if we want to get to a more effective regime. I think that's really, really interesting. And we do need to encourage information sharing and continued international cooperation between FIs on topics like this. Just to finish off here, and you know, really thank you so much for joining us on Trophy Talks. But I guess moving forward to the rest of the year, which seems incredibly uncertain as we record here today, what are the top priorities and opportunity you with regards to Wolfsburg and fighting financial crime from a bank perspective? So I think I'll give you three things that are probably top of mind. The policy level. It's about pushing ahead with the reform agenda in, in key markets. Where we are today simply isn't good enough. We've got an opportunity. I think we've got good momentum. We need to work with our partners in the public sector to grasp it. Then at an industry level, 
I think it's about identifying how to get more value from the investments in technology and in people that many banks have made. Being compliant with the regulation shouldn't be the sole purpose of a financial crime program. We've got a duty and I think an opportunity to contribute more than that. And then thirdly, the level of predicate crimes, I pick out two things to focus on, which I think have the potential to offer a force multiplier. The first is raising the profile of tackling the illegal wildlife trade. So this is on the FATF priority list this year under the Chinese presidency. And what's fantastic about tackling this crime is not just that it's abhorrent and damaging in its own right, but it's also a really effective way of mobilizing people to go after the smuggling networks that also support a a range of other crimes, including slavery, drugs, arms, and tax crimes that don't of themselves always generate the same sort of emotional response. I think the second predicate crime that's really worth focusing on is bribery and corruption. That is a great enabler for so many other crimes because it undermines the societal infrastructure. And if we can reduce it and reduce it visibly, you create conditions through which you're better placed to tackle many other uh, societal problems. And I fear, suspect with the current coronavirus-related challenges that we're going to be gripping all around the world societies are going to come under strain. So it's more important than ever that we focus on tackling that bribery-related risk. Thank you very much, David. I think that's been incredibly insightful for you know, myself and also, and also our listeners. I think being bold is very important when we look at what lies ahead for us in, in 2020 and actually trying to relate things like raising the profile of tackling wildlife trade is so important because of the halo effect and the awareness and education it brings to the rest of the industry. And as you said, the programs aren't just in terms of satisfying the regulators, they have a much wider picture and and they're of huge importance, not only to banks, but also the wider trade community, which is good for all. David, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. Look forward to hearing from you again soon and also hearing the latest from the Wolfsburg group as things develop throughout the year. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Tukash. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.